Okay, well, it's good to be here this morning, and uh, I, I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't just acknowledge the time that we're in right now. We're gathered here this morning. We are gathered here in the name of Christ in this very, very tumultuous season in our country, and I just want to commend to you that this is exactly where we should be. And I, I left our prayer time on Wednesday night, just so encouraged. Um, just before I got up here, I was, I was just looking back. I, the, the Lord brought the Acts 4 to mind, and uh, we have this time where the, the disciples are being persecuted, really, in earnest for the first time. It says they were threatened. They had been taken in by the priests, the chief priests and the elders. It says that they were threatened and let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for this man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And then it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who made the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot of vain in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. So they go to pray. And I'm, I was just thinking, I mean, when I get out of jail, if I'm jailed for my faith, you know, I, I think I'd go home first, you know, like, oh, I just want a good shower and I want a, you know, soft bed to sleep in. I don't think there'd be anything wrong with that. But I think it's so interesting that they, you know, when they were released, they went and they found their friends and they prayed together. And that particular passage goes on to say uh, that the Holy Spirit, the place where they were, was shaken and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So I just, I bring that to your mind this morning because I think it is very important that we remain together and that we continue to gather together. If you are struggling with sadness or anxiety uh, right now, worry about what's going on, I think one of the ways that you guard your heart is to stay close to the body of Christ. God has given us his spirit, his word, prayer, and the body as tools for our growth but also for our encouragement. And people are being driven away from each other right now. I was, I was with a group of pastors last week, and the, the discussion among pastors right now is, when are people going to come back to church? Uh, Matt and I read a, an article this week. It said that um, of, a, of a survey of churches that uh, somebody did, uh, that the, the, the pastors are saying only 36% of people have come back to church uh, and, and they're also saying there's a good chance that some of those people won't come back at all. They're saying actually that, that many who were just sort of attending sometimes have quit coming altogether. Those who were like, you know, every few weeks are coming, you know, every four weeks. It's, it's, that's just the way it's sort of dropping out in our society. But here's my point. It's not very hard to understand why Christians in particular are so anxious and sad because so many people have disconnected themselves from the body. And let me just offer you this by way of encouragement as, as well, um, at admonition even. You know, I think we all sort of have this mindset that like, you know, when things get tough, I'm going really, to really dig into my faith then. I'm, you know, as soon as things get tough, I'm going I'm to really clamp down and get serious. 
That's, that's, not, that's not what the Bible says happens. Actually, that's, Jesus has a, a portion of his parable of the, of the soils. He describes the, the thorny soil you know, as um, seed that, that takes root and grows, but then the cares of the world come up and choke it out. All right, so thorny soil is the soil that says, I, I really believe, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get serious later, all right? I don't believe that Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to Babylon and just suddenly were godly young men. I think they had been cultivating that for a while, and plenty of other young men who were with them were eating the food of the king and bowing down to the idol on the plain. I can read my Bible alone. I can pray alone. I can read my Bible and pray with my family, but that's not the local church because we are arms and legs and noses and toenails. That's the nature of the body, and we need to come together for exaltation and edification and equipping. And the Word of God this morning is central. We're going to place ourselves underneath the Word of God, and whatever happens this week, which, by the way, in spite of what you may have read on the freeway, God doesn't need other can either candidate um, to to have his church continue to grow uh, in this in this uh, world. All right, he's he's got that. So whatever happens this week, we are where we need to be right now, and where we need to continue to be together. All right. So interestingly, uh, this is an election that I would say has been characterized by a lot of anger. And we come to a passage in the book of John today where Jesus gets angry. And we don't see that a lot in the Gospels, but it does happen. And we get a chance this morning to look at what makes Jesus angry. Do you know what makes Jesus angry? And I bet you would say, I think I do know what Jesus makes Jesus angry. And we would probably say, Jesus gets angry at the things that I get angry at. But it might surprise you to see the things that Jesus gets angry at, because God's ways are not our ways. Open up with me to John chapter 2. That's right, we've covered a whole chapter in only two weeks. This is the, the account where Jesus cleanses the temple for the first time. Let me read this passage, and then quickly I want us to turn over to Isaiah chapter 1, but let me read the passage that we're looking at this morning. The Passover of Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found there those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because we, he knew all people. 
and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Bear with me this morning for just a second. Turn with me back into the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 1. I just want us to, to kind of bounce off of this passage in the Old Testament, and then we'll, we'll kind of move quickly through this passage here this morning. Isaiah chapter 1. And let me say this at the outset. God hates superficial religion. God hates hypocritical religion. And so we see Jesus here getting angry at hypocritical worship. And this is an age-old problem that goes all the way back in the people of God into the Old Testament. We read here in chapter 1, this is the very beginning of Isaiah. This is the introductory remarks from the prophet Isaiah in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to the people of Judah, the people of Israel. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Well, I thought that was what God wanted, right? I thought God wanted my sacrifices. I thought he asked for the sacrifices of the people, and that's what we do. We come here, and we sacrifice a little of our time on Sunday morning. We sacrifice some of our money. We look good. We're doing what we're supposed to do. That's, that's what God wants, right? What does this mean? Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has acquired, required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out my hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make my prayer, many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood." So the prophet is making God's case against God's people. And God says, I can't endure your festivals anymore. You're coming in and you're trampling the courts of my temple. Your offerings are half-hearted. Your hearts are full of iniquity. And in a different prophet, in in the prophet Amos, at one point, God says through Amos, just stop your songs. I don't want to even hear you sing anymore. God doesn't even want to hear our praise songs if we're harboring secret sin, or worse, leaving the assembly together and going out and not living to glorify the name of Christ. And y'all, there are many Christians today in this country, in the world, who are gathering and they're lifting up their hands and they're singing and they're worshiping the Lord, but their hearts are far from Him. Even today, God wants our whole heart. He doesn't just want a portion. So what should we do? We should repent. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. This all sounds very New Testament of Isaiah. In James, James chapter 1, James says, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. If if you think you're religious and you just let your tongue just 
fly out there with, with all kinds of things that aren't wholesome and that aren't edifying to God's people, you're deceiving yourself. That person religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Notice in both passages, worship that pleases God is rooted in loving God and loving our neighbor. See, widows and orphans were the most helpless part of ancient society. If you were going to serve a widow or an orphan, they couldn't give anything back to you. You were going to do that entirely for their good. They're not offering you anything in return. You are to help the helpless and keep yourself unstained by the world, which means this. If I'm all about a life devoted to holiness and reading my Bible and praying, but I ignore the needs of the people around me, if I never show mercy or seek to help the helpless whom God brings into my path, then my religion is worthless. If I'm all about the ills of society and the things and the programs for the homeless and and, and taking care of the immigrant and the marginalized, but I'm at home every night engaging in immorality and watching things and filling my mind and speaking of things that God hates, my religion is worthless. And notice what James said. We We already talked about it. But if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart and that person's religion is worthless. And what we say online counts. And that's a stinging indictment of us today. Because we want it to be one way or the other. We want to be in the camp that loves God and ignores people. We want to be in the camp that loves people but ignores God. Can't I just be out there loving God and making a difference in society and not worrying about my my heart? But Jesus wants it all. Not just the parts that all of us are comfortable giving him. And see, that's the thing. Some of us are more comfortable giving certain parts of our hearts than others. And he wants all of it. So Jesus really and truly has no political party affiliation. And what we're going to see about Jesus, interestingly, is he is really an equal opportunity offender. He has this way of like sticking his finger right where it hurts everybody. And he hates all hypocrisy. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'll just, I'll just speak for myself. Jesus hates all hypocrisy, not just the hypocrisy of the people who disagree with me. He, he hates my hypocrisy as well. And so just when I'm standing there reading my Bible or hearing somebody preach or thinking, I am really glad Jesus said that, he needed to hear that, Jesus turns to me and he says something that cuts me to the heart. So in this passage, we're going to see three confrontations. Jesus is going to confront the Sadducees, and the Pharisees are going to be over here going, yep, y'all needed to hear that. And then he's going to confront the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are going to be over here saying, yep, see, that's what you needed to hear. And then you know what he's going to do? He's going to confront all of us, because it says, Jesus knows everybody's heart. He knows what's going on in here. All right, so let's turn to confrontation number one. Confrontation number one with the Sadducees, the temple leadership. The Passover of the Jews is near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, we know that this is not Jesus' first trip up to Jerusalem for the Passover. By the way, just so you'll know, a little geography lesson here. It always says up to Jerusalem, which doesn't mean he's going north. It means he's going uphill because Jerusalem is up in the hills and it's higher than anywhere else uh, in the surrounding area. So you always go up to Jerusalem. Now, without a doubt, Jesus, who has been there since he was 12, has often been troubled by the excesses and the hypocrisy that are going on at the feast. But up until now, he's never done anything about it. And so this trip is going to be different. Now, here's a big surprising thing that you may have never realized about this passage. It wasn't wrong to sell the animals and change the money. Okay? That in and of itself wasn't wrong. I remember growing up and ladies or groups, you know, like ladies with really big hair would come and sing at church and they would be really great and they would have um, cassette tapes in the back and we would go and buy those tapes. And I remember like my grandparents saying like, that's the money changers in the temple right there. They are selling their goods in the temple. Okay? That's not what we're going after. As a matter of fact, full disclosure, Matt and I are working to make that little cubby back there uh, into a resource center, and we're going to have some books for you guys that we'll recommend at cost back there. Okay, so just so you know, when we set up our little book table back there, we are not going to be the money changers in the temple. Okay, that's, it's okay, all right? So let me explain. So you had to have an animal to sacrifice. You had to have a pigeon, you had to have a sheep, you had to have a goat. And a lot of these people are coming from a long way away, and they're going up to Jerusalem. They're going uphill. So you don't want to have to bring your lamb with you on your long journey, all right? So all that's going on here, to some extent, is people are buying the lamb. And it had to be a sacrifice. It was supposed to be, it wasn't like they were just handing out lambs so that you could go sacrifice them. You had to buy your lamb, and then you had to go have it sacrificed, okay? And so the money changers are just what it sounds like. There's people coming from all over, even like different countries, and they're bringing their money, and they're, they're changing the money into the money of the, the temple, all right? So far, so good. Not a problem. But like everything else, people have a way of taking things that are okay, that are benign, and turning them into something that is wicked. And so the priestly class in Jerusalem had found a way to use the temple for massive profit. All right, short discourse on temple leadership in Israel. This is going to help for later, all right, so just bear with me. Let's talk about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You've probably heard about the Sadducees and the Pharisees your whole life. They're definitely the bad guys in the book of John, but let's just get a little more background because they'll help us understand how Jesus is sticking his finger where it hurts here. First of all, the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are born out of the desire, 10th grade world history here, if you hadn't gotten there yet, you'll get there one day, Alexander the Great, Hellenism is sweeping its way through the ancient world, it's the rage, everybody's going Hellenistic, the Hellenistic way is kind of antithetical to a lot of what's going on in Judaism, and so the Pharisees grew out of the group of people who were saying, we're not going to do that. We are not going to embrace the Greek ways. It's actually a pretty noble impulse. And be careful, Hope Bible Church, 
how critical you are of the Pharisees because you probably would have gone to their church if you had lived back then, okay? The Pharisees are sort of rocking our vibe in general, all right? So it started out as a, as a good thing, and they build these walls around the law. And that's where they kind of get in trouble, you know? So it's like, don't touch this podium, all right? Well, you know what we're going to say? Don't even go past this little plug-in right here, and then that way we won't touch the podium. You know what we're going to say? Don't even come up on these stairs. And so eventually it becomes, if you touch the stairs, you've sinned. And that's not what God said. God said, don't touch the podium, right? So that's what the Pharisees are doing. They hated Rome, So they were kind of the liberals of the day. They were the progressives. They were like, we need to change society. We need to get Rome out of here. And they controlled the synagogues. They were the Bible guys, all right? They knew a lot about the scriptures, and they took it very seriously. Okay, the Sadducees, they were the compromisers. They were the status quo. They were like, bring on Hellenism. We'll have more of that. They didn't believe in the Bible. When, when it talks about the people arguing about whether or not there is a resurrection, that's the Sadducees. They didn't take the Bible literally. And they were the priests, which meant they controlled the temple. That's what they did. And they had devised a way to make massive amounts of money at the Passover. So in John, later, we will encounter a guy named Annas, He was a high priest. He was so corrupt that he, they actually called the the, the temple area Annas' Bazaar, all right? And the the Romans had actually recognized that this dude was a problem, and so they had pulled him out of power, but somehow he had managed to get his son in there, and his name, which you've heard before, is Caiaphas, all right? So he kept the family business going. Annas and Caiaphas and the family, they are raking it in through this money changer and sacrifice thing that they've got going on. One more thing that you need to know. When I, when I lived in Atlanta, I, I went to um, Georgia State. I was at Fayette, lived in Fayetteville, south of Atlanta. There's a, there's a town called Hampton. Some of you who follow, follow NASCAR, you know, you know about Hampton. That's where the big race is. On race day in Hampton, Georgia, Hampton becomes the second largest city in Georgia. That's how many people come into Hampton to see, to be a part of the races. Jerusalem, during the Passover, normally in Jerusalem, there would be about, they think there was about 100,000 people in the town. During the Passover, uh, Josephus, which, you know, I don't know, we don't know about him all the time, but he says that it actually increased to about a million people who showed up in Jerusalem, because everybody had to come there for the Passover, which means if you're kind of conservative and you have like one Passover lamb per five people, that's 200,000 animal sacrifices. So if you're Annas or Caiaphas, and you've got this game that you're playing, you're selling 200,000 sheep and pigeons and oxen you are making a pile of money, all right? So that's what's going on with the money changers in the temple. The definition of corruption is using your political or religious power for personal gain. 
And this is a problem as old as government. It's a problem as old as religion. It's still very much alive today. Anytime you can utilize the church to make a lot of money for yourself, to make any money for yourself that hasn't been given to you, you are guilty of corruption. So I said, Jesus wasn't a Republican or a Democrat. He wasn't a Pharisee or a Sadducee either. And he's going to make both sides angry. All right, verses 15 and 16. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple and with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. It says here that he drove them all out of the temple. Some people say this is a miracle. I don't think it is because John, as we've already seen, John is so careful to say this was a sign, this was a miracle. I don't know if he used his supernatural ability to do this or not, but I know that was pretty impressive to drove them all, perhaps 200,000 people out of the temple with their oxen and their sheep. He drives them all out. So what is it that Jesus is angry about? And by the way, uh, white, blonde-haired surfer dude Jesus who seems pretty chill, he doesn't really fit this picture of Jesus. And remember, too, anger, we are made in God's image. And, and there are certain attributes of God, His love and His mercy that we have. There are certain emotions that we can have because God has, we're made in His image. I, it is not always wrong to be angry. There is such a thing as righteous anger. If you think you have righteous anger, you probably don't. Go ahead and check yourself. But it is a thing, and Jesus has it here. So real quick, what makes Jesus angry? I'm going to give you three examples of Jesus getting angry. The, la- the first two are not in this passage, and then we'll come back to this passage. Number one, Jesus gets angry in Mark chapter 3 when the man with the withered hand comes to him on the Sabbath. In Mark chapter 3, he looked around in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So in this instance, Jesus gets angry at their hardness of heart because here is a man who could be delivered from a disease, but they're mad about it. They are refusing to show mercy and compassion to the suffering of this man. So we can say here, I think, that Jesus is angry when those who profess to be his people fail to show mercy. It makes Jesus angry. Secondly, this is, this is a different one. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus is receiving a bunch of little children. And this is what it says. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom of God. So here Jesus is described as being indignant because the kingdom of God belongs to people who are childlike. And Jesus is indignant because his disciples want to keep these little children, these helpless little children, away from him. 
You know what the next passage is in Mark chapter 10? I think this is so interesting, and I believe that Mark absolutely means to do this. The next chapter is the rich young ruler who shows up. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. And you've got to believe the disciples are saying, you know what? We could really use this guy, Jesus. He is rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. He's going to be able to fund our ministry for years to come. He's got a lot of influence. Jesus sends him away sad. I got to believe that like Peter or John or somebody was like, shouldn't we go after that guy? Like, you're, gonna just, you're just going to let him go? Jesus is indignant that they won't let the children come to him, but he's fine to let the rich young ruler walk away. So Jesus is angry at our partiality. When we prefer the rich and powerful to the weak and vulnerable. And I think this point here is worth making. Jesus wants us to love the poor, and he wants us to love the weak, and he wants us to love the marginalized for their sake, not so that we can take a picture and show somebody that we did something nice for the weak or the marginalized, because that's also hypocrisy. And so God is no more pleased with the virtue signalers of our day than he was with the money changers in the temple. Please, people, love God, love people, serve people. Don't feel driven to take a picture and show everybody that you've done it. Number three, Jesus and the temple merchants. John 2, this is our passage. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And Matthew, Matthew says in the second cleansing of the temple that will happen again when Jesus comes back uh, to Jerusalem for his crucifixion, he says, stop making it a den of robbers. They're actually victimizing the people of God by requiring them to pay exorbitant prices to have the sacrifices that they need. They're dishonoring God's temple. They're getting rich at the expense of the people. And even worse, they're taking something that is meant to be holy and they're corrupting it into something for personal gain. So, so zeal is an interesting word here. One writer says this, zeal is burning jealousy for holiness in the house of God. So we can say here for our third time that Jesus is angry, that Jesus is angry when we pretend to hide our wicked motives behind holy actions and intentions. Oh, look, we're just providing some sheep, but we're going to make a lot of money doing it. Y'all, there's a reckoning going on in the church in the United States right now, pastors and leaders of big churches and, and Christian ministries, they're getting called out for years of corruption, both financially and sexually. Unaccountable men and church boards and nonprofit boards are reaping what they've sown. And y'all, the American church is powerful and rich, and those are two things that did not characterize our Savior. And you know, there are places in this world right now where the church is neither powerful or rich, and the church is exploding in those places. Peter tells us that judgment begins with the house of God, and we should expect that Jesus is still jealous for the holiness of his church. 
What makes Jesus angry? Hard hearts that withhold mercy, hindering the helpless from coming to him, defiling his father's house that ought to be holy. Have we become flippant with these things? Do we think that Jesus no longer cares? How ought we to respond? The same as in Isaiah's day. We should repent. And let me tell you something. If you're here this morning and you're like, I've been a faker. There's no better time than right now to repent. I'll say a little bit more about that in just a minute. Confrontation number two. Okay, so in your mind's eye, picture the Pharisees being like, finally, the Sadducees are getting what's coming to them. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing this thing? Now remember, we talked about this in John chapter 1. The Jews is John's way of saying religious leadership, and, and specifically the Pharisees. The Jews were the ones who came down to the Jordan to talk to John the Baptist and say, why are you baptizing? So it's the same kind of question, which basically amounts to, who gave you the authority to do this? So they're happy that he's been on the, on the Sadducees' turf, and the Pharisees are fine with that, but now their concern is the law. And Jesus is saying, and they hear him, here's what he's saying, this is my temple, and I'll do whatever I want in it. And you know what? Jesus doesn't do parlor tricks, so they say, give us a sign. And, you know, it's not like Jesus is just going to be like, let me just pull a rabbit out of the hat. And by the way, they're seeing signs. It actually says, I don't know if you heard it at the end of the passage, it says he was going around Jerusalem doing signs. They're looking for, like, skywriting signs. Show us something to prove that you have the authority that you're claiming by doing this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up after three days? In that parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4 that I mentioned earlier, when the disciples come to him after the little parable and they say, we don't know what that means. He says, I'm speaking in parables so that, well, I have it here. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those on the outside, everything is in parables that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is judgment on the Pharisees. Let me tell you something. I know this is hard for us, but when you don't understand God's Word, people who don't understand, who willfully manipulate and don't understand God's Word, that is God's judgment. It is God's judgment to misunderstand, to, to not be able to understand God's Word. And so Jesus is being intentionally unclear here. He's speaking in a way that his followers will understand and that the religious leaders will not understand. And basically what he's saying, even though he's saying it in a vague way, is I'll give you a sign, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. But of course, at this point in his ministry, nobody has any clue what he's talking about. If there had been Twitter in those days, this would have gone viral, all right? This was fighting words. As a matter of fact, this gets brought up at the trial before his crucifixion. 
For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So they're like, remember when he said that? We didn't like it then. We don't like it now. We think he should die. And Jesus doesn't really explain. It says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus doesn't explain it. His judgment about this temple was physical. He was turning over tables. He was running out the oxen, ruining their businesses. But his judgment here is more spiritual because he doesn't explain. He doesn't explain what he's saying. It says his disciples were nearby, and they hear, and they remember after he was raised from the dead, and they understood. So God's word can be judgment to those who don't understand, but praise God, God's word can be grace to those who do. The disciples don't understand until years later. How many times have you read a passage of Scripture for years, and then all of a sudden, You read it one day, or you hear somebody talk about it, or you read about it in a book, and you go, I have never seen that before. And I think that's what happens with the disciples. Years later, they're talking, and Jesus is raised from the dead, and they're like, oh, that's what he was talking about on that day. Here's something else that I think might give some encouragement to some of you maybe who are praying for loved ones. It is God's ability. It is within his power to take something that was said or something that was heard years ago and bring it somebody's mind and have them repent. I've read stories of people living in immorality, living with, with, in ways that they shouldn't, waking up in bed one night, remembering a passage from their childhood, repenting of their sins and repenting of their situation and, 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 and going back to God. So God can do a lot with his word. Number three, confrontation number three everyone who believes. All right, so we've indicted the Pharisees. I don't remember which side they were on. We've divided, we've indicted the the Sadducees, and now get ready, because it's all of us. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Maybe you're sitting there today and you're thinking, those Pharisees and those Sadducees, they sure got what's coming to them. Jesus really sticks it to those religious elites. Jesus is owning the Pharisees. He's drinking Sadducee tears. Here's where you can't escape Jesus. He knows your heart too. John says that Jesus has started doing signs Apparently, on this trip, he had started performing miracles. He's doing things that point to who he is and what he claims to be. Many believed in his name, but Jesus wasn't taken in. He was not taken in by superficial faith. He remembered, he knows that there are four types of soil, and only one of them is good soil. It says he didn't entrust himself to them. The word entrust there is the same word for belief, pistuo. So many were pistuoing in Jesus, but Jesus did not pistuo them. Many believed in Jesus, 
but Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Because he knows human hearts. How does Jesus always know where to stick his finger where it hurts? Because he knows our hearts. You know what we need to remember these days? We don't know what's going on in other people's hearts. Only Jesus knows what's going on in people's hearts. And it saddens me to see so many Christians speaking to one another and about one another, especially people who have different political stances, as if they're wicked, as if they have wicked hearts. You don't know that person's heart. But you also can't fake Jesus out. You can't fake, you can fake out humans, but you can't fake out God. He knows if you're coming in here today and you're pretending to be holy. He knows if you're trying desperately to do good things to overcome the bad things that you do. He knows if you're stealing his glory and hoping people will see how good you are. When I was 19 years old, I grew up in the church, probably like many of you. I gave my life to Christ as a child, was baptized. I was a good kid. I always say I didn't go to parties because I didn't like parties. I don't know. If I'd like parties, maybe I would have gone to parties. But, but I felt pretty good about it. You know, like, I don't do that. I didn't want to do it anyway, but I don't do it. See? I was the, like, head of the youth group kind of guy. I, everybody depended on me. Everybody liked me. Everybody thought I was a good kid. And I went to church one Sunday. I was about 19 years old. What I love to do on Sunday afternoons is go home and sleep while I'm watching golf. There is nothing, there's no better sleep than golf on TV. And that's what I did when I was 19. And I heard a sermon. It was from Mark. I used to know the passage. I've forgotten it. Uh, but it talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees as, as whitewashed tombs. And something about what John Crotz at Faith Bible Church said that day struck me in my heart. I thought, you know, I have never done anything to really glorify God. Like, it's all been for me. I, it's all about me looking good. It's all about people thinking highly of me. I couldn't watch golf. I couldn't fall asleep. I, I sat in my room and read my Bible, and I thought, I've got this wrong. And God opened my eyes to something that day. I think I was saved before, but I had a clearer view of what it meant to bring glory to God and not just try to bring, bring glory to myself. And you know what? Those were sweet, sweet days after that realization. And I began to be discipled, and I began to learn things, and I would say that God used that to open my eyes to some things and put me on the track of life that I've been on by His grace ever since. Maybe you're a whitewashed tomb. Maybe you're filled with hypocrisy. Maybe you're like the money changers in the temple, just trying to get something out of your relationship with Jesus Christ for yourself, something to look good or to, to say, I don't know. But you can always repent, and you can always see that the glory of God is the greatest good in the universe, and that we are all destined to bring glory to Him, and you can either get on board now in this life and worship Him, or you can wait till the next when judgment comes and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. It's happening either way that Jesus Christ is Lord. So, how does this passage make John's case about who Jesus is? By the time we're done, we're going to have this verse memorized. John 20, 30 through 31. But these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing here, and I'm, I'm landing the plane. Jesus is possessing his temple. This is a very bold claim of messianic identity. He will do it again, like I said, in the final week of his life. In fact, I would say that week he will occupy the temple and behave more messianically than he does at any other time in his earthly ministry. He is demonstrating that the temple is his. This is my temple. I'm Lord of it. I do what I want. That's the bold claim. Jesus also says in this passage, my father is dishonored by what you're doing. And the Jews don't like this. They don't speak like that. Later on in John 5.18, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So for John's purposes, this is who Jesus is. He claims the temple for himself, and he claims God as his father. And those are two pretty massive claims. But we can make it even more cosmic than that. This is Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The first part you've probably heard before. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's like Malachi 3, 1. A, listen to Malachi 3.1b, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This event, and the one three years later before his crucifixion, is a preview of what's to come. One day, Jesus Christ the King will come again, and he will truly occupy his temple. And so, this little event in John chapter 3, and one that we will look, for, look at later, is a preview of his second coming. And at that time, Jesus is going to do more than toss over some tables and run out some sheep. We're in the time of the Lord's great patience right now. The system of this world is not getting what it deserves. But that patience will run out. Let me close by reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn." But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would convict our hearts, especially in this tense season. God, I, I am convicted by this passage personally of just of my tendency to, to judge other people's hearts right now. Uh, just to, to see a, a sign in front of a house and to all of a sudden just form an opinion of what that person must be like. God, you are the one who knows hearts. 
You hate our hypocrisy, all of it. You hate my hypocrisy. You hate it when we don't show mercy. And you hate it when we don't care for those who are helpless and we prefer those who are powerful. So, Father, I pray if there's anybody in here this morning who has never known what it means to bring glory to God, I pray that you would bring that to them today. Father, may we all look forward to the day when you send your son, Jesus Christ, and we can bow before him, acknowledging him as Lord, (laughs) the Lord of the temple, the one who possesses everything. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.